We continue with chapter 8 and we'll make a seum, official conclusion, and we'll say l'chaim, as an editor, when we complete a book, it's a great celebration. Chapter 8, Aleph 1. What happens? Here we have a situation where everything belonging to the Holy Temple is holy, yet the Holy Temple also needs to have employees, and employees like to get paid. You know, employees who don't get paid, they're called volunteers. The workers, the employees who work in the holy places. And specifically here, he's talking about an orchard which has been consecrated to the temple fund. Orchards don't tend themselves. Somebody has to work in the orchard. Someone has to pick the fruit. Even though the treasurer of the temple fund made an agreement with the employees, these are agricultural employees, that not only will he pay them a salary, but he'll also give them lunch. Despite the fact that they were promised lunch, it's inappropriate for them to eat the figs belonging to the sacred. They can say, hey, we're picking figs, we're working with figs. Even the Torah says that somebody who works with something should be allowed to eat it, not when you're working in the secret. The temple treasurer should get them peanut butter and jelly sandwiches. If they're a better quality worker, you should get them sushi. If they ate of the holy consecrated figs because this whole field belongs to the temple fund, then they violated the mitzvah of mi'ilah. A misappropriation. So what happens? They promise to give them lunch. The consecration fund, the Holy Temple Fund, should give them money. They should be able to go to a glock kosher eatery and buy a tuna fish sandwich. You think they had tuna fish sandwiches back then? I don't know. Okay. Bays, similarly speaking, hadosh, when someone is threshing, karshine hegdish, we learned earlier, there's a low quality food which is translated as vetch. Consecrated vetch, it's a lower quality food that grows. It's important that he muzzle the ox. Why? Because if the ox partakes from the holy, then the person is violating mila, even though it says in the Prophet, do not muzzle an ox while it's threshing. Here he does. Why? Shanaman, as the verse says, do not muzzle an ox while it's threshing. And this we will learn in great detail. In the order, in the laws of renting and leasing and supplying animals and so on. But still, <coughs> this can be and is interpreted as Dayush or Don't muzzle an ox when it's threshing food that it can eat. But here, this is holy temple food and the ox may not eat it. So this would also be a violation. Gimel 3. What if somebody comes to the temple treasure and he says, listen, I am a tradesman. I'm a craftsman. You need something done. I'll do it. But I saw a wonderful cow. I'll take your cow. That'll be my payment. I saw this beautiful beam. I need this beam because I'm rebuilding my house. I'll take the beam and I'll give you my labor. That sounds fair. It's labor for money value, barter. So he says, not so simple. One cannot transfer the holiness of property belonging to the consecrated for labor. The only way you can remove the holiness from an object, whether it's a cow or a bean, is with money. The holiness gets transferred to the money. There's no way technically of transferring it to the labor. So therefore, what do you do? Ketzad, for example. What if a craftsman goes and he does necessary work for the temple fund and that work should be billed like $100? You cannot give him an animal belonging to the sacred even if that animal is worth $100. A beautiful designer garment which was donated by somebody they just bought it from Bloomingdale's and they donated it so it's worth $100. It doesn't work. You can't take consecration and trade it off for labor. There's no system. You have to first trade the sanctity of that item for money because that's called redemption. I give you $100, everyday money, the temple fund acquires $100 and releases that animal, releases that garment. And after that garment or that animal becomes mundane, then you can give it to the worker and he can get paid. Because again, labor cannot redeem the consecrated. In if they wanted to. Then they can buy the animal. Furthermore, when they do construction in the holy temple, 
There's a problem. It's better not to take lumber and not to take stones that already belong to the temple fund. It makes sense if you're building for the temple fund, if you're fixing stuff, then you take material belonging to the temple fund. This is the problem. Furthermore, when construction is done for the temple fund, it should not be done with the intent that it's already sacred. Why? Because as we will learn, we're concerned about the workers benefiting from that stuff along the way. That would be violating the Mila. So what's the solution? The solution is that when you do construction for the temple fund, do it from everyday mundane money. Use mundane, go to Builders Emporium, they still have that. Go to a lumber store, buy lumber, and then you'll charge it to the Holy Temple Fund. But now during construction, it should be mundane. Xero, we're concerned. What's the concern here? Let's spell it out. The concern is that it's a hot, hot day here in Southern California. We can't even imagine a hot day. But imagine it's a hot, hot day, and the workers are taking shade in the, through the building. They're using the building blocks, the wall, to give them shade. That's benefiting from the sacred. Are you sure an eleven or he'll lean, take the weight off his feet and lean on a rock? A or a beam, while he's doing construction. So here he just violated Mila, because this belongs to the temple. You're not allowed to take shade or lean on the beam or the wall. So therefore, you should build it with everyday money. And after you finish the construction, you take consecrated money and you pay for whatever it is that you took. Because at that moment, the job is done. At that moment, we're not concerned with this being a stumbling block for the employees. What if it was an emergency? It was a one-time deal and the temple treasurer needed a beam, needed a, a piece of stone, and they happened to have it in storage. Can they use it? He says, yeah, this is Nishkepel. It's not so terrible. It's only one time. So you take it, I have it from the temple fund. Because we're not talking about doing this for days and days. That we should have to be concerned. Person's going to lean on it or take shade on it and so on. If it's a one-time deal, let's not worry about it. Hey, five. When you make the agreement with the workers to do construction in the holy temple or to do construction in the courtyards, there's a problem. Why? What's the problem? The problem is that usually when you get an estimate from a construction company, you know, Moshe's construction, what does he tell you? I'll charge you so much and so much a square foot. Right? They build by square feet. Now the problem is that today you measure and it comes to this, and tomorrow you measure and it comes to this, and the next day you measure and it comes to this. Depends how you measure. So therefore, Halacha came up with a solution. This is amazing. So you make the construction contract as follows. You say you will construct for me so many and so many feet. Today we say feet, back then they said amos, L's, like a foot and a half, or two feet, depending upon the opinion. For so much and so much money. But in the construction agreement you define that the amo is the shorter amo. Bas, the amo bas eslim edzba. That the price is given for an amo of 20 edzbas. An edzba is a finger, which is, let's say, the foot and a half amo. But when they measure that which they build, and they come to submit the bill, you measure with the bigger amo. Bas arba weighs 24 fingers. Let's say the two-foot amo. Why? The price was given for a foot and a half amo, for a 20-finger amo. And then you measure 24 finger, yeah. We want to have that, that space, of that, those four fingers, extra, so that there be no cheating here, so be no misappropriation. Because human nature is, nobody is precise when they measure. And if you bid by amo, and you build by amo, someone is going to be guilty of misappropriation sooner or later. Therefore, we have that safety gap, that safety space, in order to protect everyone from this serious, severe transgression of misappropriating temple funds, where we bid on a smaller measure, and we bill on a larger measure. Furthermore, we're so concerned with Mi'ilah that tonight that the courts instituted a rule, a recognized rule. You know what happens? You have the Kohen who takes, for example, a sacrifice of the Holy of Holies, like a sin offering or a guilt offering, and the Kohen has to cook that offering and eat it in the base of Migdash. Okay, that's nice. Where does he get wood from? Where does he get salt from? Assuming he was not on a sultry diet. The answer is he takes plenty of wood in the Holy Temple. There's plenty of salt in the Holy Temple. The problem is it belongs to the Holy Temple. What's the Kohen? The answer is it's okay. The Kohen is eating this in the Holy Temple. He's allowed to use the wood to cook, he's allowed to use the salt to spice it up. No problem. In that case, if the Kohen brings a sandwich from home, if the Kohen brings a steak from home, it's a kosher steak, but it's not a sacrifice. Can the Kohen borrow some wood and some salt to cook his steak because it was a slow day? No. The Kohen cannot take the salt from the Holy Temple and use it for his own mundane food. No cerebral. If it's a holy sacrifice, then the Kohen is allowed to do it. Why? Because the court established it. But if it's the Kohen's private lunch, he cannot use the wood or the salt from the base on the English. And one more before we get to the closing paragraph. Zion 7. What if there was a limb? 
from a sacrifice. Remember, we said we broke up the sacrifices into limbs, and then they would put salt on every <coughs> part of the sacrifice. So every limb got salt. What if the Kohen, I don't know, let's use a mundane example, let's use a modern day example. What if the Kohen had some popcorn? And the Kohen decided that he needs a little salt on his popcorn. So he walks over to his brother Kohen, takes a little salt <coughs> off of the limb that the guy's bringing up to the altar. This is misappropriation. This is not good. Because this was salt applied <coughs> on the limb, which is being brought up to the altar. However, we also learned that there is a lot of salt applied to a lot of things on the ramp. At the top, we said, we said that there are three places where there is a salt supply. Shalgabe Akemesh, what if there is salt on the ramp? Shalom is or on Arisham is at the head of the altar. Ain Malim, there is no misappropriation if somebody uses some of that salt because it has no use. Whereas the salt on the limb, it was, going, it was about to be offered on the altar. Usually, when the Rambam concludes a book, he concludes with a message. And here comes our message. Chez says the Rambam in his concluding statement, it is appropriate for man to meditate, to contemplate, the laws of the Torah, the Holy Torah, and to really know, safe in Yonam, to know the subject matter thoroughly, as best as his mind is able to fathom it. Which means that we need to understand Torah. Wherever we can, we need to explain Torah. We need to comprehend Torah. Torah has to be understood. We need to master Torah. Now, what if you tried, and you worked, and you contemplated, and you meditated, but you just can't explain something? There is no reason, there is no rhyme and reason for this particular mitzvah. So you say, listen, I'm a pretty smart guy. I've got one of the highest IQs I know. I don't understand this? It must be flawed. No. Do not look down at that mitzvah that you can't comprehend. The Rambam poetically uses verbiage from the verse, which God talks about at Mount Sinai, about setting up a line, a do not cross line, a police line. Let him not break through to ascend up to Hashem. Lest he be killed. That's the warning by Mount Sinai. Don't break through the police line, because if you touch the mountain, you'll die. If you go where you shouldn't go, if you try and say, because I don't understand this mitzvah, it's not a mitzvah, then you get into big trouble. Don't approach God's commandments like you approach everyday stuff. It's not so simple. This is godly. Somebody once said, you know, I don't understand God. I really don't understand God. So the fellow says to him, would you serve and worship a God? You did understand Obviously we don't understand God. That's why he's God. You can't expect to understand God. We are limited and we are a creation and God is a creator. So now the Rambam ties it to these laws. Come and see. And let me just give you a little bit of an introduction as to what I believe the Rambam is doing. The Rambam is taking a lesson from the detailed, meticulous laws of misappropriation, which as we study it, we say, wow, this sounds a little bit over, a little overdone. And then the Rambam says, it's godly. And you know what says the Rambam? The whole book, the whole section, the whole category of sacrifice law. Don't think sacrifices make sense. Don't think that sacrifices were something that once upon a time the nations of the world did, and that's why God gave it to the Jewish people. They shouldn't be jealous of the nations of the world, which is sort of what the Rambam himself says in the guide for the perplexed. But that's in the guide for the perplexed. In Halakha, the Rambam says, you know what sacrifice law is? It's a law without reason. It's a hook. There are three kinds of commandments. Edus, testimonial laws, hukim. Laws without reason, mishpatim, civil laws. Sacrifice is not a tradition. Sacrifice is in the category of laws without reason. Sacred laws, holy laws. Don't try to understand. And if you don't understand, throw it away. It doesn't work that way. This is what the Rambam is telling us here. Come and see how severe and strict the Torah was in the laws of misappropriation. What is the whole idea of misappropriation? You have a piece of wood. Or some stones. The offer or dirt. And ashes. And somebody said it's holy. Somebody said I'm donating this to the temple pond. What made this holy? Somebody's words. That's how it became holy. Somebody said it's holy. Once the name of the master of the universe has been called upon them. Merely verbally, merely with words. They became holy. Anybody who acts with them in a mundane manner. Moaba violates the laws of misappropriation. Trespasses. Furthermore, the whole law of Meila we learned is inadvertent. Even if it was inadvertent, that's what these laws are about. So you have to make atonement by making restitution and paying a fifth and bringing a guilt offering. How much more so? If we're not talking about just because Mr. Joe Schmo said, this is holy. We're talking about commandments, which the Holy One, blessed be He, carved out for us, so to speak. If somebody trespasses and speaks and thinks inappropriately, even inadvertently, boy, do we need forgiveness, atonement. I'm sorry. I skipped. A person should not rebel, kick, because he doesn't know the reason. A person should say, this makes no sense, I'm not doing it. And he shouldn't make up stories, he shouldn't make up reasons which are untrue. 
shouldn't think about them in mundane terms. A classical example. Why do we keep kosher? We keep kosher because God said so. Why don't we eat pig? Why can't we mix milk and meat? Because God said so. These are laws without reason. The human being goes on to say that Moshe was very forward, and he studied uh, the animals, and he knew about trichinosis, and Moshe wanted to avoid the Jewish people from getting diseases from eating pig. And then we say, because today is USDA, so it's okay to eat pig, because everything is inspected today. The reason is not true. It's called rationalization after the fact, and therefore, the reason to begin with is a lie, and the rationalization is not true. We did not eat pig then and now, because God decreed it. The same goes with mikveh. Why did people go to mikveh? Well, once upon a time, they didn't have showers, they didn't have beds, they had outhouses. Today, we have beds and showers and bidets and all kinds of stuff. You don't need mikveh. The whole reason is not true. The reason we keep mikveh is because God decreed it. Law without reason. So you don't apply a reason and then say the reason is no longer relevant when you're making up the reason to begin with. This is what the Rambam said here more or less right now. Harinam arbitrator, look at what it says in the Torah. Hushmartan, you shall guard. Eskol chukais, like all of my statutes. Statutes are laws without reasons. We have to guard and do laws without reason like we do, and guard laws that do make sense. And when the activity is known, and that means that one should observe the decrees in the same way. What's guarding? She is He should be meticulously cautious. They shouldn't imagine in his mind that they are lesser value than the laws that have reason. The laws that have reason are laws that their reasons are revealed and the goodness of their performance is obvious to us in this world. The Rambam gives a list of examples of laws that do make sense. The law that you're not allowed to rob people. Obviously, when you start robbing people, you destroy the whole structure of the world. Private property is the very centerpiece of a society. The fact that you're able to own private property and that no one's able to take it from you. Or murder. You can't live in a society where murder is rampant. That's called a breakdown of society. Honoring father and mother. It makes sense to honor your father and mother. They paid your college tuition. They paid for your Twinkies. Like the kid who is uh, 16 years old and he gets angry at his father and he says, get out of my room. This is my room and it's my car and it's my computer and it's my cell phone and don't you step into my room. And the father is shivering because he's afraid of the kid. The father doesn't have enough to say to the kid, I paid for your car. And <laughs> you're telling me. But hey, you know. So keep it up. Honoring parents is a rational thing. What are laws without reason? This, this is a list of examples of laws with reason. Laws without reason. Where we don't really know the reason. And if we made up a reason, it's not true. Have said, I have hewn out, cut out laws without reason. You have no permission to think into their reasons. You're never going to figure it out. Says the Rambam, we know that a person's evil inclination drives him crazy. You don't really have to keep this mitzvah. It's old fashioned. It's not relevant today, etc., etc. These are the ones that the nations of the world can't handle. Says that Haman, in the Purim story, he had no problem with the logical, rational commandments. He couldn't stand the mitzvahs that are ult, that are covenant commandments. He didn't believe in covenants. So therefore, he fought and attacked mitzvahs like circumcision, mitzvahs like Shabbos, mitzvahs like film, any covenant commandment came and fought. Therefore, after the Purim miracle, we say, the Jewish people once again began to observe the covenant commandments. The Gemara says, All right, Torah, Simcha is Yomtev, Shabbos, Sosan is circumcision, your court is film. After the defeat of Haman, the Jewish people were able to observe once again the mitzvahs that made them holy. Haman can't relate to holiness. Chigain, for example, Isur Bosar Chazir, the law against having pig meat. What's so terrible about a pig? A person could say, Some of my best friends are pigs. <laughs> Why can't I eat pig? Well, Bosar Bechalor, milk and meat. And we know in the Hanukkah story, the Greeks had to offer a pig on the altar. That was their ultimate sign that they defeated Judea, that they defeated Israel. The Eglarufor, the whole idea of chopping off the head of this calf when a corpse was found in the middle of nowhere. What sense does it make? Or Porah Dumor, the detailed laws of the red heifer, which we will learn about. Vishoyer Hamishaleach, or that goat which is sent off in the desert to the Azazel, pushed off the cliff, which we did learn about, makes no sense. These are all laws without reason. The Kamal how upset, how afflicted King David felt, how much he suffered from the heretics, from the idolaters, who drove him crazy. Why are you people? You people call yourself a sophisticated, rational, logical, developed people, and yet you keep these foolish laws. As long as they pursued him and they gave him false answers, because the human being is limited. The problem is when you make up a false reason for a law without reason, you end up eating that reason. 
King David's answer was to delve more deeply in his Torah study, to cleave to Hashem more. Shenemar, the verse in Tehillim, Toflu, Allah Sheker, Zaydim, willful transgressors have stacked falsehoods against me. I, with all my heart, have continued to guard your precepts. And it says there, and when all of your commandments take place, Sheker, they pursued me with falsehood. Help me. And now the Rambam says these famous words. These are the Rambam's words in his halacha at the conclusion of the book dealing with sacrifices. Says the Rambam. Vechol hakorbonesh kulam. The entire set of laws. All sacrifices of sacrifice. The laws of sacrifices. Don't think they are in any way, shape, or form anything other than laws without reason. Miklal hakukim. They are and they fall into the category of laws without reason. So says God. Why? Because. And all the wise and the most common wise of the Rambam himself discusses in the guide of perplexed because that's what human beings did and God wanted the people to feel like the other. That's all nice and good but it's not the ultimate truth. The ultimate truth is because Hashem said so. I heard a beautiful parable which I've shared in many of my classes including Chumash. I believe I mentioned it earlier in the Rambam and I'll mention it in the closing words here. The parable is of a husband and wife who are very much in love and they have a wonderful marriage. The wife says to the husband, do me a favor my dear. Our anniversary is coming up. My birthday is coming up. Get me flowers. I want flowers. You can call 1-800-Flowers. So he says, you know what? I'm not that comfortable with flowers. Because flowers, they sit around for two days, three days, four days, five days, and then they rot. And then you throw them away. And you spend all that money on garbage. I would rather go to Sears, get you a craftsman tool, and it'll last forever. I'll get you a drill. I'll get you a set of knives. Something uh, forever. So she says, you know, that's very nice. I think craftsman tools are great. But I want flowers. Get me flowers. He says, I, I would, but I can't get myself to do it. It's a waste of money. So she says, listen. If I'm asking you for flowers, you should get me flowers just because you love me. Not because you understand that flowers are good. Because I'm asking you to do it. Do it as an expression of your love for me. And if he's a smart husband, he gets flowers. And if he's not a smart husband, then sooner or later he's going to get a lot of flowers. <laughs> so the moral of the story is, Hashem says to the Jewish people, listen, bring me sacrifices. The Jewish people say, I don't know, you want me to give charity? I'll give charity. You want me to donate money to the shul, to the mikvah, to the Israel? I'll donate money. But don't make me bring sacrifices. It's such a waste. You take the sacrifice, you put it on the altar, smoke, smoke. Come on. So God says, listen. This is what I'm telling you to do. You love me, you'll do what I'm asking you to do only because you love me. And that is the idea of a law without reason. Do it because I ask you to do it. And if you love me, you will do it. And that's why sacrifices reach such a profound, deep place within the relationship of Hashem and the Jewish people because it's something that we do not because we understand. In fact, we don't understand. It's something that we do because of our connection which transcends understanding. Back to the Rambam. Omru Chachamim, our sages have said, is because of the service of sacrifices, you know, the famous mission in the beginning of Pirkei Avot, the world stands on three things, Allah Torah, on Torah, the sacrifices, and the third is deeds of loving kindness. That by virtue of the fact that we fulfill God's mitzvahs that have no reason, and God's civil laws, the upright people merit to a lifetime in the world to come. Laws without reason are so, of such paramount, so important, it says that these laws come first. You shall observe, my laws without reason, my ordinances, which man shall engage in and do, and live in them. And now the Rambam concludes, as he does with every section, Blessed be the merciful one, Hashem, who provides assistance, and Nigmar Sefer Shmini, we have now completed book 8 of the 14, the book of service, its laws are, Tesha 9, of its chapters, Chamisha Vitishim, 59. And here's the list. Based on Pura, the laws of the base on Migdash. Shemina Prokim 8 chapters. Hilchas Klei on Migdash. The laws of the vessels of the Holy Temple. Asara Prokim 10 chapters. Hilchas Bias on Migdash. The laws of coming and going. In the base on Migdash. Tisha Prokim 9 chapters. Hilchas Yisurim Yisbeah. The laws of the prohibited offerings on the altar. Shema Prokim 7 chapters. Hilchas Masa Akabonis. The deeds of the offerings. Tisha Asara Prokim 19 chapters. Hilchas Tmidul Musafim. The laws of the regular and additional offerings. Asara Prokim 10 chapters. Hilchas Tulam Migdashim. Anything that become that can become disqualified and unfit in the sacred. Tisha Asara Prokim 19 chapters. Hilchas Avedis Yom Kippur. The laws of the Holy Yom Kippur Day. The service. Hamisha Prokim 5 chapters. And finally that which we just completed. Hilchas Meila. The laws of misappropriation. Shemina Prokim 8 chapters. End of chapter 8. End of Hilchas Meila. And end of book eight. Sefer Ho'Aveda. Mazel Tov, Mazel Tov. And we're all going to say L'chaim here. And I want everybody who is with us on the internet to also take a little L'chaim. You know, whether it's a little L'chaim uh, alcoholic or it's grape juice or it's uh, God's drink which they offer in the Holy Temple, Diet Coke. Whatever it is you want to take. L'chaim. Baruch Atah Aminoy L'chaim 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 L'
L'chaim, give me a little uh, real l'chaim. Leave us on the air. L'chaim, a lot of blessings to everyone who studies with us. You should have the fulfillment of all of your heart's desires for good. L'chaim, l'chaim, l'chaim. Okay. With Mazel Ubrocha, we begin Rambam. Mishnah Torah, Sefer, Chi, Book 8. And uh, Rambam begins every book with a verse. And here, depending upon which book you look at, there are different verses brought down. For example, looking at the Chayenu, I see, Tikain Tfilosi Ktedas Leponecha, Maseis Kapai Minchas Oreb. Which is a pasuk in Tehillim. May my prayer established be established for you before you as incense, raising my hands as a meal offering brought in the afternoon. In the Rambam Moznayim, it says Lecha Ezbach Zebach Toda Obeshem Hashem Ekra. So I'm not sure if this is a mistake or not, but to you I will offer an, thank, an offering of thanks and call out in the name of Hashem. In any event, these psukim have to do with sacrifices. Sefer Hakarbonos, the book of sacrifices. Who Sefer Chi? This is book nine, and the obvious question that is asked here is, wait a minute, what do you mean book of sacrifices? And what do you think book eight was? We just spent months. Studying Book 8, which is all about sacrifices. It's called Sefer Abedah, or Sefer Abedah, the service in the Holy Temple. And the Rambam himself explains that he left these six sections of law, which have to do more with personal sacrifices rather than communal sacrifices. And these are special offerings, such as the Paschal Sacrifice, with which we're going to begin the festive holiday sacrifice, Chagiga, the firstborn, and so on and so forth. So the Rambam isolated these personal sacrifice laws and put them in a separate book called Sefer HaKarbones, the Book of Sacrifices Offerings. To move on through the table of contents, Hilchais, uh, I'm sorry, Hilchas Korban Pesach, the laws of the Paschal Sacrifice. Hilchas Chagiga, the laws of the Festive Sacrifice Offering. Hilchas Bechidus, the laws of the Sacrifices of Firstborn Offering. Hilchas Shigogas, the laws of Sacrifice Offered to Atone for Inadvertent Transgressions. Hilchas Mechusrei Kapora, the laws of Sacrifices brought by those who still require a sacrifice before their full cycle of atonement can come about. And Hilchas Tmura, the laws of exchanging animals for animals which are forbidden, but then if somebody violates that law, both animals become sacred. Moving right along to the first section of laws, Hilchas Korban Pesach, the laws of the Paschal Offering. Yeshbech Lolon, in this general section of laws, there are Sheshesrei Mitzvah, 16 mitzvahs. Arba mitzvahs, I say, four positive commandments, mitzvahs, and twelve negative commandments. And I, I must say, before we get into this, that the Paschal sacrifice, the Korban Pesach, is one of the most central laws of Judaism. It's part of the genesis of the Jewish people. It's the first mitzvah, the first positive mitzvah the Jewish people were given yet in Egypt. Mishchu, our sages say, withdraw your hands from Avodah Zorah, which is the general negative commandment, and take a sheep for you, which is the general positive commandment. Hashem said to the Jewish people in Egypt yet, while they were still steeped in idol worship and in all the impurities and in all the abominations of Egypt, do you have the courage to withdraw from that which goes around you and take the idol, the icon, the deity of Egypt, which was the sheep, and offer it to God? And this is what is asked of a Jew every day, to withdraw from the Mishigasin around us and to take that which is most holy. People worship. In all times, people worship different things. In Egypt, they worship a sheep. Some people worship idols. Some people worship the almighty dollar. It makes no difference. Whatever it is, we have to take it and offer it to Hashem. And that's why this is such an important mitzvah. That's why the Seder is perhaps the most central experience of Jewish family life to transmit Haggadah, the basic teachings of Judaism generation to generation to the four sons, and so on and so forth. Okay. Aleph, mitzvah number one, to slaughter the Paschal offering in its right time, which is the afternoon of the 14th day of Nisan. In our world, Erev Pesach, the day before Pesach, days, Shalei Lizbeach Eisei Allah Chometz, not to offer, not to sacrifice the Paschal sacrifice, while one still has Chometz, leavening, Gimel, Shalei Tolun Eimurah, that those parts of the inner, the fats and organs of the sacrifice, inside the sacrifice, which have to be offered on the altar, should be done so expeditiously and not permitted to tarry, to remain overnight. Dalid Lishchei Pesach Sheini, in the event that somebody was, as we will learn, impure, in a state of impurity, or away, out of town, he has an opportunity to bring a makeup offering a month later, on the 14th day of ER. So that's to slaughter the second Paschal offering. Hey, Lechel, to eat, to consume, Besar HaPesach, the meat of the Paschal offering. The Paschal offering is not enough to offer. But the offerer, the one who offers it, and his group, actually have to go home and eat it. On, which means, as part of a meal in which they eat matzah. And more the unleavened wafers called matzah. And the bitter herbs. When is this? The night of the 15th. Which means the Jew was in the Beis Amigdash on the afternoon of the 14th, and he went through the process of getting his Paschal sacrifice slaughtered, etc., etc., as we will learn. He then took the meat back to his group, because he represented a group. And the group got together, 
and they experience the Paschal sacrifice celebration, which we call in our world a Seder. This had to be done, of course, as we will learn in Jerusalem. Vav six lechel Pesach in the event that somebody was able to bring a second Paschal offering because he was impure or away for the first one, he has to eat the second Paschal offering as well. Al matzah umara with matzah umara beleil chamish also lechidah shasheni on the eve of the fifteenth of the second month, which is er. Zayin one of the mitzvahs shall yechel no umabushol the Paschal sacrifice may not be eaten raw or cooked; it has to be roasted. That, as I said earlier, there is a group which signs up for the particular Paschal offering. And we will learn this. And as we will learn, every person in the group had to be able to consume a kazayas, an olive's worth of meat. So therefore the group was limited. And the fellow brings his Paschal sacrifice, the head of the group, the chief, the captain, brings his Paschal sacrifice back to his group, and they have this later. So you may not take this Paschal offering outside the group. If you're not signed up, you're not a member, it's a member's only. It's like Paschal. That someone who was an apostate, a heretic, who denies the basic laws of Judaism, I'm going to learn details, may not eat of this Paschal sacrifice. That a resident or hired worker that is not of the Jewish faith may not eat of the Paschal sacrifice. An uncircumcised male may not eat of the Paschal sacrifice. That a bone should not be broken of the Paschal sacrifice as long as there is meat on it. The same law applies to the second Paschal sacrifice if and when it is brought. There should be nothing left until morning. It should be finished. The same applies for the second Paschal offering. The Chagiga has a different rule. It's a two-day offering, and we may not leave anything until the third day. These are the headlines and the detailed applications of all of these commandments. The Prokim Elu come up in the following chapters. And now, we begin chapter one of the laws of Korban Pesach, of the Paschal sacrifice. The Korban Pesach laws have ten chapters. Aleph, one. And the Rambam, in his brilliant, organized way, builds a pyramid, explaining the very basics of the mitzvah, starting from the foundation. Mitzvah's assay. It is a positive commandment, by the way. By the way. This is a very special mitzvah. The Rambam's birthday was Arab Pesach. The Rambam was born on the day of the Paschal sacrifice. Mitzvah's assay. It is a positive commandment, Lishchit, to slaughter Esa Pesach, the Paschal sacrifice, when the Arba also the Nisan, the 14th day of the month of Nisan, Achar Chatzos, after noon. How do we know when noon is? We've covered this many times. We divide the daylight hours of the day, sunrise to sunset, by 12 hours and half that time, six hours marks noon. Now, if it's an 18-hour day, so each hour is an hour and a half. Therefore, if you want to know what noon, what time noon is anywhere in any place, you have to go to something which is today on your iPhone or Android called a halachic calendar, halachic times. And it's an app, and you download it, and you know what time noon is wherever you are. The ein sheichatin ela paschal sacrifice can either be brought from lambs or goats. That's it. That's your entire choice. Like this fellow was flying years ago on El Al. And he was offered lunch. And he says, are there any choices? And the Jewish stewardess says, yes or no? That is your choice. So, lambs or goats? Zech, Zohar, male, Ben Shona, within the first year. Once it hits the second birthday, you got a problem. Now, here's a good trivial question to ask people. Somebody says they are a yeshiva student. They study. They know Judaism. Okay. Is the mitzvah of bringing the Paschal offering only a men's mitzvah? As usually is in the case of mitzvahs that have to be done at a certain time. Or are women obligated to the Paschal sacrifice as well? Although this is a mitzvah limited by time, both a male and a female, both a man and a woman, are obligated to bring this offering. And in Gemara Pshachim it talks about the fact that it says, the mispar nefoshes by the number of souls rather than the number of men. So this is a men-women mitzvah. A woman is obligated with a man to bring the paschal sacrifice. Someone who just nullifies, ignores the fulfillment of this commandment. And the 14th day of Nisan comes and goes. He does not offer his paschal sacrifice. Now, a question has to be asked. As we say back in France. I studied in France. Pourquoi? Why did he not offer his Paschal sacrifice on the 14th? Was he impure? Says the Rambam, no. The told me he was not impure. Was he out of town? Was he in a lot taking salt baths? No. He wasn't even far away. So why didn't he do it? Uh-huh. Because. Pascal. So you tell him Pascal. Of course, his soul is cut off from the Jewish people. The whole application of Kardis, as we've talked tens of times. That's if he did it intentionally, willfully. 
as we used to say when I was a kid, on purpose. But if he did it inadvertently, as we used to say when I was a kid, accidentally on purpose. No, accidentally, potter, then he's exempt. Why? Because uh, he didn't intend to do it. Now, where is this Paschal sacrifice offered? This is interesting. I'm glad you asked. The Paschal sacrifice may only be slaughtered in the Holy Temple courtyard. We learned earlier in the beginning of Sefer Abedah that there was a massive courtyard in the Holy Temple. That is where the Paschal sacrifice was slaughtered. Like any other holy sacrifices. You can't just slaughter it in your backyard. You can't do it between your pool and your patio on your barbecue. It doesn't work. Furthermore, <coughs> there were times that private altars were permitted. Even during the time that private altars were permitted between various mishkans and so on. Only free will offerings were brought on these private altars. Never a paschal sacrifice. Anyone who offers a paschal sacrifice on a private altar is liable to biblical ashes. And Emma, the verse specifically covers that. The verse says, You may not, you cannot, to offer the paschal offering. You can't just offer your offering in any city you want to. You can't do it in Tel Aviv. From the oral tradition we learn that these words you can't offer the paschal offering in one of your gates. This covers one who will offer in a private on a private altar. Even when other offerings, such as free will offerings, were permitted to be brought on private offer, on private altars. When the offering of the paschal offering is always after noon What if somebody said the early bird gets the worm? Not that we're talking about worms, God forbid. But I want to bring it early, I'll bring it at eleven o'clock. Remember, there's a lot of people coming. Every Jew has a guy they appoint to be the chief of their group, and he goes to the base of Nigdash and uh, talk about bottlenecks, talk about the El Toro wine. That's only something people in Southern California will understand. Talk about the, the, the backup by the Lincoln Tunnel. If he offered it before Chatzos, possibly it's unfit before noon. Furthermore, we know that as a rule in the base of Nigdash, we've learned this many times, the base of Nigdash opened for business in the morning with a particular sacrifice. Which sacrifice? The morning Tumid, the morning daily offering. The base of Nigdash closed for business in the afternoon with which sacrifice? The afternoon Tumid. That is a rule every day, except. Ere Pesach, the Paschal sacrifice is slaughtered right after the Tomid, right after the afternoon daily offering. Also, we have to make sure that the afternoon incense offering is offered. And the candles are prepared and kindled. At that point in time, they begin to slaughter the Paschal offerings. Now again, this was a tough job because there were a lot of offerings. This went on until the end of the day. So hopefully they got an early start. And they had an early offering of the daily afternoon offering, and they left themselves as much time in the day as possible to offer the Paschal offering. Now, what if they made a mistake? Or for some reason, they offered it afternoon, but before the daily offering. It's not the best, but kosher, it's kosher. Now, we've learned many times that the key element to an offering is not so much the slaughtering, which can be done even by a non-Kohen. But the key element of a sacrifice is the blood offering, the dashing, or in the case of the Paschal, offering the pouring of the blood at the base of the altar. So, first, the blood of the daily offering should be dashed, as we learned earlier, sprinkled on the altar. So someone should mix the blood, because we don't want the blood to coagulate. If the blood coagulates, then you can't pour it on the wall towards the base of the altar, as we will learn. Only after that, may he dash or pour the blood of the Paschal offering. However, if the order was reversed, and first the Paschal blood was sprinkled or poured, and then the daily offering blood, it is kosher, not the best way, but kosher. I made a bracha earlier, I'm going to have some water. From the thought of the roast lamb, my mouth is watering. Hey, if somebody slaughters a paschal offering in the right time, and he had a olive's worth, at least an olive's worth, of chametz at the time, he could be liable for a biblical ashish. Do not slaughter while you have chametz, offering the blood of my sacrifice. One should not slaughter the paschal offering while chametz is still there. And again, if we fast forward to our times, when do we get rid of the chametz? In the morning. We stop eating at a certain time, we have to burn it as well before noon. This applies whether the one who has the chametz is the one who slaughters it, or the one who dashes the blood or pours the blood, or the one who offers the fats and inner parts on the altar. They're all liable. If even one of them had chametz in his property, or in the 
possession of one of the group who signed up for this particular offering, who will eat this Paschal offering, because I have even an olive's worth of chomets, at the time of offering, he can be liable to lashes. Does that disqualify the entire offering? No. The sacrifice is still kosher. All the other signer-uppers, all the other members of that group, they're not in trouble. It's this guy who has the chomets, is in trouble. Now, is this a normal sprinkling or dashing of blood? The answer is, I'm glad you asked. Absolutely not. The blood of the Paschal offering toll requires shvicha. Pouring. It has to be poured out. Poured gently from close to the altar rather than sprinkled upon it from far. That's the idea of pour. To gently pour it right at the altar. Keneged HaYisrael, it has to be poured out facing the base, the bottom of the altar. And we learned that certain sides of the altar have bases and certain sides did not have bases. Obviously, it has to be poured with a base. And once the blood is poured, what they do is they open up, they, they, they remove the skin, they cut open the belly, and they bring forth as a mur of the inner parts that have to be offered. And they are smoked. They are offered. The fat. Of each sacrifice separately. And then the offerer, the master, the owner of this paschal offering, takes what's left of his offering. He gets to keep the hide, the skin. Remember, animal hides are worth a lot of money. Ordinarily, the kohanim got the animal hides. Not here. Here, the owner takes it home. He gives his kids a new coat, a mean coat. Or maybe the base, not a mean coat, a lamb coat. Lambskin. He brings it to his house, to his home in Jerusalem, and he roasts it. And he eats it in the evening. Now, again, I was always wondering, you have so many Jews who have to bring the Paschal offering, and it can only be brought in a window of a few hours. How is it accomplished? What a wonderful question. We're going to deal with this. Somebody leaves the inner parts that have to be offered and smoked on the altar, meaning the fats and the organs that the Torah requires to be smoked on the altar. He did not offer them much alone until they remained carried, slept overnight, so to speak. When if so, they became unfit. Belina, through this experience of remaining overnight, this is a terrible transgression. He transgresses a negative commandment. As it says, Do not allow the fat of my... Festival offering to tarry, to remain until morning. The Apopisha here, the Rambam says, a law consistent with the principles that the Rambam established, that even though he transgressed a mitzvah, a negative commandment, what happens as a rule when you transgress a negative commandment? There could be lashes if it's intentional. And you're like, here there can't be lashes. Why? Because all he did is he didn't do. This was not a sin of commission, it was a sin of omission. He did not offer it. You don't get lashes for not doing something. And you can continue to smoke it all night. Which means that it could be offered on the altar all night until the morning star rises, until the dawn's early light. Now the plot thickens. When does When the fourteenth of Nisan comes out on Shabbos. Because instead of violating the Shabbos, we bring the fats on Yom Tif after Shabbos. Which means we have no choice but to slaughter it. But being that we can smoke the fats and limbs at night as well, why not wait till after Shabbos? So if Erev Pesach is on Shabbos, you bring it right after Shabbos. You got plenty of time. If the fourteenth of Nisan is on a weekday, what is a weekday? A weekday is a weekday. What comes after the weekday holiday? You don't want to leave burning over for the holiday. Well, you don't have to. You don't take the burning of the fats and the organs, which could have been done during the weekday, for example. If Pesach was Tuesday night, Wednesday, Erev Pesach was Tuesday, which is a problem. Erev Pesach is Tuesday. So you do it Tuesday. You don't leave it for Tuesday night, which is already Yom Tov. Because you don't want to violate Yom Tov. You're allowed to burn things on Yom Tov. You're allowed to cook on Yom Tov, but not unnecessarily. Now we get into the nitty-gritty. How did this work? Basically, the Paschal offering was broken up into three groups. These could be small groups, or these could be massive groups. Shenemar, as it says, the Torah alludes to it. It says, It should be offered, it should be slaughtered. Kahal, Adas, Yisrael, the congregation of the community of Israel. We have three expressions of community. Kahal is one, congregation. Ada, community is two. The Israel, Israel is three. Because we're talking about three, minimum community is a minion, is ten. We prefer to have thirty. Three times ten in each group. So you have to have a minimum of thirty people in the group. Group one needs thirty, group two needs thirty, group three needs thirty. Now, in later years, it was never a problem to get thirty, thirty, thirty. In later years, the problem was too many people. I mean, there were thousands of people. There were hundreds of thousands. Every Jew had to sign up and bring the Paschal sacrifice. Getting back to the details of when there are not enough people. 
to have 30, 30 and 30, if there was, for example, a total of 50 people, Nichlasim, Bechil, Shlashim, so 30 go in, Bechil, and they offer Bechil, Masar, 10 go out, and Nichlasim, Masar, 10 go in, leaving 20 there, Bechil, Bechil, Masar, Nichlasim, Masar, the same goes with the last 10. So at all times there are 30. Even though 10 active people slaughter, there are various other interpretations as to how this is applied. What if there were less than 50 in the scenario? You can't even slaughter the Paschal sacrifice because there isn't enough to make three groups of 30. It says here in the parentheses, if he did it, kosher is still kosher. If he did it, kosher they all did it together in one small group, kosher is still kosher. Kate said, Nishan, how does it work? The first group entered, packed the temple courtyard if necessary, until the courtyard was packed, wall to wall with people. The courtyard was a big area. So you had tons of people with their sacrifices packing into the courtyard. <clears throat> That's group one. And they closed, or they locked, the gates of the courtyard not to allow anybody in or out. And they would begin slaughtering these offerings. Now, they had many, many, many offerings slaughtered at once. Now, this was the test of the Beis Hamikdash systems, because you had maximum amounts of kohanim, and they were lined up in the hundreds and hundreds and hundreds to work. And everything had to be, as we say here, chick-chock. And he's going to describe some of the chick-chock. Now, remember, we learned earlier in great detail that Bechal's man shall yushayk them as long as the slaughtering of this group was going on, or makrivim as long as they were offering the blood, pouring it at the base of the altar, kerim alabim as ha'alel, you had the Levites who were standing in their designated spot, and they were reading and singing the halal. As we learned earlier, in Gomru Ahala, what if they completed the Ahala, Vadayim Leshom Akat Milakir, and this group still did not complete their offering, Shayim, they repeated the Ahala again. In Shadowin, if they repeated it again, Leshom Akat, and they still didn't finish offering, Mishashim, they did it a third time, and that's what the Levites were, they were singers. Now, says the Rambam, we have a tradition that there was never a necessity to do it a third time. Why? Because there were so many Kohanim. The systems were perfected that hundreds and even thousands of Paschal sacrifices could be offered chick-chock, as we will learn. This is mind-boggling. Because we're accustomed to the laws that we learned earlier, where you have a, a daily offering and you have X amount of coin who help bring it up the ramp. It's all production. No, here, no, chick shock. And we're going to learn that. By the way, if you don't know what chick shock means, you're going to be disadvantaged. Yud Beis, I'll call Krio Krio. Every time they read the Hallel, taking the sound, Shalosh Kiyos, three sets. Three sounds, Machatetes, with the trumpets. Kia, throughout Kia. Kia is that flat sound. Tu, Trua is and Kia. Hail, Behain, Lay Nisach, and the Shas Nisach. Ordinarily, as we learned, the shofar or the trumpets were sounded at the time of the libations. Here, there are no libations. Here, it's only a sacrifice. Taking the Shashkita, so this sounding of the horns is done during the slaughtering. How does this work? How can they possibly produce such a production? So he says, the Kohanim stand. Shure, Shure, lines. They are lined up, what we call in our world an assembly line. There was an assembly line of Kohanim, and then a second assembly line of Kohanim, and so on. And in their hands were bowls of silver, and bowls of gold. If there was a line of silver bowls, then this was the silver line. If there was a line of golden bowls, then this was the golden line. And they would not mix the gold with the silver. If the Kohanim had the silver vessels, that's what they had. They had the golden vessels, that's what they had. This was their assembly line. In order that the onlooker should see beauty. Because you see, like, as we will learn, the vessels were handed to Kohanim. It was almost like the vessels were floating. Now, these vessels had no legs, no base. They were almost like V-shaped. Because it was intended, they should never put it down. That the blood should coagulate. Because if the blood coagulates, we got troubles. And now, this is how it worked. The one who slaughtered, who theoretically could even be a non-Kohen, would do the slaughtering, but the Kohen had to receive the blood. He then passed the blood to the next Kohen. Now, there is a rule when it comes to Kohanim. And that's a famous rule called Kohanim Zrizimhein. Kohanim are fast. They're filled with alacrity. They move quickly. Kohanim are not manana people. They're chick people. He passed the blood to the next guy. And his friend passed it to his friend. Assembly line style. You wanted many, many Kohanim to participate. They maximized the Kohanim. Ah, in no time at all. The blood will arrive. So the Kohen closest to the altar. He pours it out in one fell swoop. This is not a kind of sprinkling that required complicated acts as other sacrifices did. This is chick You pour it out. Hugging the wall towards the base. And then he receives another bowl. Molly full. Next bowl. First he receives the full bowl, then he hands back the empty bowl, and this goes quick. Hustle, hustle, move on, hustle. Then at the same time, 
they are hanging and skinning is cool the entire animal. The Kale and they have expert on him who tear the belly. And the inner parts are pressed. Removing the filth and the waste, which are separated. They take the inner parts that have to be offered on the altar. They put it in a ministering vessel. They always apply salt. We learn that everything gets salted. And the cone smokes this on the altar. How did this process work? They were like nails of metal. That were fixed into the walls and into the beams. They hung the sheep or the lamb. Again, we're not talking about bulls or cows. We're talking about sheep and lambs, which are relatively speaking smaller animals. Whoever couldn't find a place to hang their sheep or lamb because all the nails were filled. There were thin reeds and boards. So we have two guys holding the board, hanging the board off their shoulders. And then they hang, they affix the sheep's body on that portable board, on a nail on the portable board. And they flay it and and they bring the inner parts, the limbs of the fats, upon the altar. And all of this was assembly line style. Very, very quickly, filled with alacrity. Hundreds and hundreds of him running a series of assembly lines. I assure you that by learning this, the next time you read the order of the Paschal Sacrifice and the Siddur, Arab Pesach will have a whole different appreciation of what Arab Pesach is all about by learning this with every detail. If they finish offering, when they finish offering, so group one is finished. They unlock and open the courtyard doors. Remember the courtyard of the Holy Temple? Big, massive place. And group one emerges, exits, like the elevators. You exit first. And the second group comes in. And the second group repeats exactly what the first group did. We're not going to go into the details. All right, we can go. No, never mind, I'm just kidding. Yatsashniya, the second group comes out. And the third group goes in. Like the acts of the first group. Exactly so. Exactly was the second and third group. When the third group finished, Yatsas, and went. They washed the temple courtyard. How do you wash the temple courtyard? Why do you wash the temple courtyard? You wash it in order to remove all of the yuck. Imagine thousands and thousands and thousands of offerings were brought. Hundreds of thousands. So there was a canal of water running through the temple courtyard. The temple courtyard had marble floors. They would plug the exit of the canal. It would flood. It would fill with water. They would scrub it, allow the water to flood out, and chick-chuck, they were able to wash the temple courtyard. What a system. Maybe they used a little, uh, as Alfredo used to say here, ahox. That's Yiddish for Ajax. Now, this was before they even invented new and improved Ajax. Okay. So that's washing the floor of the courtyard. Now, what if Chal, our boss of the 14th day of Nisan, comes out? Bishabbos on Shabbos, what does that do to this whole process? The answer is not very much, because just as one does in the weekdays, the temple, this Paschal sacrifice offering has to be brought on Shabbos as well. Even to the point of, they wash the courtyard on Shabbos. Even though we're not allowed to wash floors on Shabbos because we're concerned, even though this is a marble floor, what if it won't be a marble floor? What if it'll be a dirt floor? We're going to be smoothing the floor and building and all the other stuff we learned. These are all rabbinic decrees. There are no prohibitions of shuas rabbinic decrees in the base of Migdash. That's a rule that we're going to repeat again and again. Even something that's not part of the service, like washing the floor. Anything which is a shuas, definition of shuas, means prohibitions instituted because of the activities resemble forbidden labor or could lead to the performance of forbidden labor, rabbinic fence. No shuas is applicable to begin with in the base of Migdash. However, there are certain Sabbath requirements, certain Sabbath changes as we come out of the base of Migdash. You can't just take your meat order home Hello, they had a system where people waited till after Shabbos if Shabbos was Ere Pesach. If the day before Pesach came out on the Sabbath, there was a system not to violate the spirit and laws of Shabbos. Why? Because you're not allowed to carry on Shabbos. Even though Jerusalem had a wall around it, it was considered halakhically a Carmelis, which is one of the four domains, and they did not carry in Jerusalem on Shabbos. The first group, Yetzim B'Pishchei, went with their Paschal offerings. And they would wait until Shabbos finished on the Temple Mount. And the second group, Yetzim B'Pishchei, would go with their Paschal sacrifices, and they would stay on the surrounding rampart area. So that was where group two went. The rampart ten cubits high outside the wall of the Temple Courtyard made it a separate domain, which was permissible. And the third group stayed in the courtyard. And everybody waited until Shabbos until Saturday night. Then, once Shabbos was over, everybody took, went with their Paschal offering and went home and had a late Seder. 
slaughtering of the Paschal offering, and the sprinkling of its blood, and the pressing of the innards, we learned earlier, to push out the dung and the schmutz. The hectic halabab and the smoking of the fats, all of the above, they can supersede as a Shabbos, the Shabbos laws. Why? <coughs> because the rule here is anything that could not have been done before Shabbos can and must be done on Shabbos. You can't do this before Shabbos because you're not allowed to slaughter the animal before Shabbos when Ere Pesach is Shabbos. Because there's a special time. You can't say, oh, you know what? Ere Pesach is Shabbos, I'll do it on the 13th day of the month. It doesn't work. It's set time. Bringing it and carrying it from out of the Boundary line of permissibility on Shabbos. We learned these, these laws in great detail earlier in the laws of Eruvin. Or if the animal had a wart, <coughs> and the wart could be removed, and the animal would not be considered blemished, you have to, the guy has to pull out his penknife and remove the wart. On Shabbos, not so much. None of that supersedes the Shabbos. Why? You should have checked your animal and cut the wart off before Shabbos. This could have been done before Shabbos. However, if he can remove the wart by hand, even on Shabbos, no, he can do it. It was so dried up that it wasn't even something that needed to be cut. can like scrape it, not even with a utensil. Again, this would fall into the category of a rabbinic fence, a shavuz. There is no shavuz observance whatsoever in the base of the also. The fact that we had to take this Paschal sacrifice home and roast it. We have to wash the inner parts of the animal. None of that supersedes us. Because whatever could be done after Shabbos should be done after Shabbos. So remember, what's going on here? Pesach is Erev Shabbos. Pesach is Friday. Whatever could be done before... I'm sorry. Let me correct myself. Pesach is Shabbos. Whatever could be done on Friday should be done on Friday. Whatever could be done on Saturday night should be done on Saturday night. Everything else can and must be done on Shabbos Erev Pesach. Yutes, now remember, it appears to me that the way the system worked here is everybody had to bring their own knife in order to slaughter the Paschal sacrifice. Shachach. I think that's what it means. Shachach, if the person forgot, he didn't bring a knife. The problem is, can you bring this knife on Shabbos? He says, well, you'll be under Shabbos. He should not bring it on Shabbos. But he does have a solution. He can hook the knife in between the horns of the sheep, or in the hair of the wool of the lamb. And he could encourage the animal to walk and then bring it into the temple courtyard. And there he would sanctify the animal. What does that mean? It means that you're not really supposed to sanctify an animal on Shabbos. But in this case, if he sanctified it before Shabbos, you're not going to make personal use of an animal to carry your knife. So you better not sanctify it before. Even though he's having the animal work for him on Shabbos, it's an unusual, abnormal form of having the animal carry a burden on Shabbos. He hooked it between the horns, he hooked it in the wool. Because this is a mitzvah, it was permitted. He didn't sanctify his paschal offering. He didn't say this, this here, there's this here and there's that there. This here is my paschal offering. But if he already sanctified it, he verbally said, this is my Pesach offering, then he's not allowed to make use of a sacred offering for personal chores. He can't bring a knife on it because he's having sacred animals work for him. You're not allowed to work with your firstborn ox. You're not allowed to have a sacrifice work for you. We also know you're not allowed to sanctify an animal on Shabbos. Why was this permitted? Because there's a set time for this sacrifice. There is no choice. He may sanctify it on Shabbos, because that's the only way this will work. So also there is a Chagiga festive offering, which one may sanctify on the holiday, and we're not concerned. And now comes the closing law of today's chapter 1, a very plausible, important law. What if he slaughters the slaughterer, slaughters the paschal sacrifice, and as he slaughters it, or after he slaughters it, he finds out that it's blemished, or he finds out that it has an issue with one of its internal organs, where it would not have been able to live for 12 months, consider trave. So no matter what, and no matter when, this is not a kosher offering. What do you do? The answer is, you do what you got to do. You got to do what you got to do. He offers another one. He gets himself another animal, and he slaughters another one. Whether this is Beim Bechel in weekday, Beim Shabbos, or on Shabbos, it makes no difference. There must have been a place where you were able to buy an animal on credit, and he goes and gets himself another one. I feel a mayor, even theoretically, if 99 became unfit, and he has to bring 100. He keeps on going, like an ever-ready battery. Until one is kosher. Or... The other cutoff is, until it's dark. Because once it's dark, it's too late to bring the Paschal offering. It has to be, Bain Harbayim, 
between sunset, between noon and sunset. <coughs> now, because it's beyond his control, <coughs> his obligation will be carried over to the second phase after the 14th of the year. Why? Because this is another form of emergency beyond his control. It's no different than being away or being impure. End of chapter 1. Rambam Mishnah Torah, Hilchas Karbon Pesach. We're learning the laws of that very central, fundamental mitzvah of Judaism, the Paschal Sacrifice. Patek Shani, chapter 2. Now, in chapter 1, we learned the basic mechanism of how the Paschal Sacrifice worked. And it was fascinating. It is fascinating. There's something very unique and very interesting about the Paschal Sacrifice, and that is that, in general, there are two categories of sacrifices. One is communal sacrifices, which were covered in the last book, Sefer Avodah, the book of the service of the Holy Temple. We talk about many, many communal sacrifices. And then there are individual sacrifices, where I bring a sacrifice. The Paschal sacrifice is sort of, in a way, it can be said, is a combination between a communal sacrifice and a personal sacrifice. Because it is a sacrifice brought on behalf of a small community. Which small community? Anyone who signs up for it. A member-only sacrifice. You have to be, the expression in Torah is, counted. You have to be signed up and counted for this sacrifice in order for the sacrifice to cover you. And that's what he says here in We can only sacrifice the Paschal offering for those who signed up for it, who were enumerated as partaking of it. Where does this come from? Shanem, it comes from the Torah, from the Pesach, from the verse. Tachosu al should be enumerated upon this lamp. Melamed, this teaches us, that you have to sign up, so to speak, for this offering, while the offering is still alive. You can't come after the offering was sacrificed and say, oh, me too. doesn't work that way. You have to sign up, put your name on the sign-up sheet while the lamb is still alive. And those who are counted and enumerated for a particular Paschal offering, they are called, there's a modern word today, it means a member of the group. This is the group, the group who signed up. So now we come into a lot of sign-up laws. What if there's a do-it-yourself guy who says, I don't like to do anything in groups. I'm a loner. I'll bring my own Paschal sacrifice. Now, there is a problem, because the Paschal sacrifice is holy, has to be completed, it's a transgression to leave over anything, past the cutoff time. So here we have this one guy who does his own Paschal sacrifice, he better have a good appetite. Kosher, it is kosher, there's no reason you can't have a one guy sacrifice. But who provided that? He should be fit to consume the whole thing. If he's not fit to consume the whole thing to begin with, then uh, that's not what the Torah had in mind, the Torah wanted it consumed. Despite the fact that theoretically this is permissible, we invest effort. That to begin with, a Paschal sacrifice should never be brought by one individual. It says they, plural, shall offer it, shall make it. So the design of the Torah is that the Paschal sacrifice should be brought in groups. You sign up and then a representative of the group takes it and offers it and brings it back to the table where everybody shares it. I would imagine also, and these are my words, that practically speaking, the fact that this was groups, and as we learn, how much of the Paschal sacrifice has to be eaten? A kazayas, an olive's worth? So you figure uh, you have a lamb or, or a sheep or whatever the small animal was that was used for the Paschal sacrifice. Uh, 30, 40, 50 people could take a, an olive's worth out of a lamb. So it also made it more doable, where you could have X amount of Paschal sacrifices being offered in a small window of time, and then be consumed by 30, 40, 50, as many people. It has to be brought from lamb or goat. So now he says, The only ones who can be part of that sign-up group for the Paschal sacrifice is someone who is able to eat. The person has to be healthy enough and fit enough to eat. So therefore, if one of the group was caught in a minor, a very old, a baby, or a very old person, or a sick person, where they cannot eat, what good does it do if they sign up? This is about signing up to eat. If he can consume at least a kazayas, at least an olive size of this Paschal sacrifice, then he could be part of this group. For which we slaughter this offering, but if he can't physically consume an olive-sized worth of the roasted meat, then you can't slaughter for him, he can't be part of this group. This is not about how holy you are, how spiritual you are, this is about can you eat. Each man, each person, according to his consumption. He has to be fit to consume. Even if you can have a hundred people, but if they can't consume an olive's worth each, what good is a hundred people if no one's going to eat it? Then you do not slaughter the sacrifice for this particular person, even though there's 99 other people going to eat it.
Because if there's 99 other people, we're not worried about the fact that the land is not going to be consumed, but this guy should not be part of it because he's not an eater. You've got to be a good eater. It's like I invite people to, my wife and I invite people to our home for Friday night. Very often people say, you know, I'm very nervous. I don't know what to do. I've never been to a Friday night Shabbat table. I said, there's only one thing you need to know, and that is how to eat. If you know how to eat, you're good. Other than that, the rest is easy. So that's the Paschal sacrifice law. You have to know how to eat. Now, we learned earlier that women, men, are obligated. The fact is that slaves, servants, if they are circumcised, Canaanite servants who are circumcised, which become the possession of the owner during the time that slavery existed, are also obligated. But now you also have to make sure that the gathering of people who will get together and consume this Paschal sacrifice will act in a respectful way. They're not going to act in an inappropriate way in a sinful way, there wouldn't be a lewd gathering. So therefore, he says here in Dali, and you should not make a group of people, even though they legally signed on, of only women and slaves, or only children and slaves, because who knows what kind of activity will go on there. It's not appropriate. Because we don't want there to be inappropriate activity going on over there. It's not an appropriate mix of group. We're concerned about inappropriate intimacy going on between women and slaves, because slaves are known to be... It's a, uh, Slaves are known to be engaged in sinful activity. If you have children with slaves, we're concerned about child molestation and, and so on. Therefore, where you put people is important. You don't create inappropriate groups. Avel, however, theoretically, there's no reason why an entire group of women cannot be created. That's fine. Either you can have families, you don't want to have families. You can have a woman's chabura, a paschal sacrifice. There's nothing wrong with that. Even the, past, the second paschal sacrifice, not only the first. Or, theoretically, you can have a whole chabura, a whole group filled with slaves. That's not a problem. What we're concerned is that the mix should not be an inappropriate mix to set ourselves up for problems. And there's no reason you can't have minors there as well. They should be part of the group. We don't want a whole group of minors. Why? Because minors do not have intellectual maturity and they don't have the obligation, the full obligation for the mitzvah. It's more of a training. So you don't do a whole shechita for minors. You just put the minors in between adults. And so also, you should not make a group of all sick people because they can't consume. It's kingdom of all old people. You don't have a an AARP chabura, a senior citizen chabura, or mourners, we know that a person, after immediately losing something, someone close to them, is called an onin, and the, it's questionable as to whether they can observe mitzvahs or not. So, you don't want an entire group of onanim, of, of mourners, even though they are able to eat, but still, I believe the issue is, it's questionable, no, I'm sorry, this is about the sick people or the older people, we're afraid that we're going to set ourselves up for leaving over of the Paschal offering, which will cause it to become Unfit, and that's not something we want to do. So with the mourner, we're concerned that being that, even though he's, I believe, out of his first day of mourning, nevertheless, he's not going to eat with appetite, and this is going to cause the Paschal sacrifice to be left over. That is, I believe, the interpretation here. However, if they did it, and they slaughtered a Paschal sacrifice on this type of a group, who may very well not complete the eating because they are elderly or infirm or what have you, kosher is kosher. Of course, they have to see to it that, if possible, they should not leave anything over. Although the halacha is that a convert is like a full Jew and a convert has to bring the Paschal sacrifice, but do not make a, an entire group of converts because they're not experienced enough in the laws. Perhaps they will not be meticulously careful. And they'll make something happen that will cause it to be unfit. Therefore, we should have a mixed group rather than an all-convert group. Rashi interprets it differently and says the converts will be overly meticulous in the application of the law because converts take law so seriously that they're going to find something wrong. So therefore there should be a mix of the two. However, says perhaps they will not be meticulous cause it to become unfit. However, if they do offer the sacrifice on their behalf, kosher is kosher. What if they slaughtered the sacrifice for someone who was not on the list? Or to a group where not every one of them could consume an olive's worth. Or they slaughtered the paschal sacrifice for a group which had amongst them uncircumcised males, which is a problem. Because an uncircumcised male is not permitted to eat from it. Or to the impure. An impure person is not allowed to eat from it. That's why there's the Pesach Shani, the second chance sacrifice. Also, in the case of any of the above scenarios, the whole thing becomes unfit. 
because they are not permitted to be part of this. What if he slaughtered the sacrifice for a mixed group? Amongst this group, you had people who can consume an olive's worth, and people who cannot. For those who are counted, are signed up, and others who did not formally sign up. For those who are circumcised without aim, and for those who are uncircumcised, for those who are ritually pure, or those who are not ritually pure, kosher, it is kosher, because you had part of the group that was suitable. Those who are able to eat as the law mandates, and the other ones, you imagine, as if you didn't consider them in the mix, as if they don't exist. What if, you, what if they slaughtered the sacrifice? For those who signed up, who are circumcised, and at the point of time when they poured the blood, they did it. I'm having in mind those in the group who are circumcised, those in the group who are not. Apostle, and this thought, now we go back to thoughts, makes this whole sacrifice unfit. Because the sprinkling of the blood is a very severe, stringent moment of the sacrifice. Because as we've learned many times, slaughtering is not the main part of a sacrifice. Even an Israelite can slaughter theoretically. It is the pouring or sprinkling of the blood that is the main game of the sacrifice. What if he slaughtered it? Having in mind to those, that those who are circumcised in the group, she is by Arelim, having in mind that it was also slaughtered for those who are not circumcised. Possible, it's unfit. Because they're thinking about uncircumcised members during the process of sprinkling. What if they slaughtered it for those who will eat it? The blood will be sprinkled for those who will not. It's kosher, it's kosher. But nobody fulfills their obligation. Everybody has to go back and have another one. Because he didn't have in mind those who will eat at the sprinkling. Somebody who is well at the moment of the slaughtering. But at the moment when the blood is being poured along the altar down to the base. He is sick. Or at the moment of slaughtering, he was not well. He became well at the sprinkling moment of the blood. The slaughter or the pouring of the blood should not be performed until he should be well. Until he's well. Throughout. From slaughter to the pouring of the blood. Now the question is, what happens when a person slaughters a paschal sacrifice for someone else and the someone else is not aware of it? For example, a person may slaughter the paschal sacrifice for the purpose of having his son and daughter fulfill minors. He has in mind his little children. Or, his male or female servants, in the case of children, or in the case of Canaanite male female slaves, it makes no difference what they want because they are minors or they are slaves and they don't have their own will, so to speak. So therefore, if a, if a, a person slaughters the offering for his family members or his slaves, that's fine. This does not apply to his adult sons and daughters. Or his servants, or his male or female servants, who are Jews, who are 100% free people, according to halacha, for halachic purposes, or his wife, who has to agree to be part of his group, and they have to consent. If a person does not consent unless they are a minor or a slave, it doesn't count. However, if he said, I am slaughtering the Paschal sacrifice with you in mind, and they were silent, when they did not object, there's a rule in halacha that says, that when somebody's silent, they consent. So if he says, I'm slaughtering for you, and they didn't say anything, and this suggests that they did consent. What if he slaughtered for his son and daughter who were minor? Or for his male or female slaves who were, who were Canaanite. We learned earlier that that's fine. He can do it on their behalf. He doesn't even have to ask them. However, here, the plot thickens. They went and signed up for another group. So they showed that they're not interested. They fulfilled the obligation by the act of their master because the master has dominion over them in the case of minor children or slaves. However, what if he did it for his wife or his son and daughter who were adult? or his male or female Hebrew slave who are free people for halachic purposes they then went and signed up for another group there's no greater objection that somebody can make than going and signing up for another group and they fulfill their obligation from their own paschal sacrifice now comes an interesting situation which every married man knows Ha'isha, a woman who's in her husband's house her father counted her in when he did the paschal sacrifice because he's a good father and the husband counted her in for his paschal sacrifice because he's a good husband. You can't have two paschal sacrifices. So now someone's got to, she's got to choose between her husband and her father. I will quote Alfredo. That could be Benny Dondrius. Teichel Michel Bailo. Halacha says her first commitment is to her husband. Her first connection is to her husband. The Halacha says she goes with her husband. 
That is, in the case of a married woman who was listed by her husband on his list, by her father on his list. However, what if she was hurrying? She was packing the suitcases, but she's going home to Papa for the first Pesach after their marriage. It's the first Pesach after the wedding. It's like every girl wants to go home for the first Pesach. So she's packing, she's getting her last items together, she's pulling together her makeup. In this case, still the husband slaughtered his Paschal sacrifice, and the father slaughtered his and counted this young lady on both. What happens now, being that she was packing her suitcase ready to go, just waiting for the limo to come and take her to the private airfield. Her father sent it alone. She should eat of her father's Paschal sacrifice. Why? Because she's going home. Because this is the first Pesach. Because her actions showed that she's with her father. But from here onward, after the first year, it doesn't necessarily mean that there's a limo coming to pick her up and taking her to the airport. It could be she's walking across the street on Pesach night to have Seder with her father. In the Jewish tradition, by the way, in, in the, it is a custom, whenever possible, at least in the first year, for newlyweds to spend the Pesach Seder with the bride's father, with the bride's parents. In the very beginning of the marriage, it's kind of customary. You know, when applicable and when possible. However, after the first year, she should eat wherever she wants to. She has to make the decision, husband or father. However, here the Rambam mentions a very important factor. She must choose at the time of the slaughter. You can't choose later. You can't say, okay, it's dinner time, let's see. Where am I? Where did I sign up for? You have to have signed up. It's not, it's not a joke. So also, a less pleasant situation, you're orphan. Orphans have to be taken care of. So they have guardians. In halachic language, the guardian of an orphan is called an apotropos. A court-appointed guardian. The Bedina appoints an apotropos who is the guardian of the estate, of the orphan, of his education, of his mitzvahs, and so on. Sheshach to all of and two guardians listed the orphan on their list. So the orphan now has two paschal sacrifices. You can't have two paschal sacrifices. The orphan can choose which paschal sacrifice he wants to eat from. When does this apply? Be awesome with a minor orphan. A minor orphan has guardians, and then he can choose. But if he's an adult orphan, it's like he appointed, he signed up for two paschal orphans. You can't do that. Somebody signs up for two offerings. What's the rule? The rule is somebody signs up for two paschal offerings, they eat from the first, and the second falls away. So in the case of this adult orphan, post-bar or bas mitzvah orphan, if they're signed up for both, because two guardians had them in mind, the first counts. Now comes a complicated scenario in halacha, a slave, who has two masters. So the slave is 50% owned by one master, 50% owned by another master. The question is, whose paschal offering does he participate in? Does he partake in? If the two partners are very wary of each other, they're each watching out that the other should not have the slave at his seder, because that means that he's the owner, then he should not eat of either. Because you're killing me, Larry. Remain and not feed him, but if they don't care, let him choose and eat wherever he wants. There's this classical scenario in Allah where someone is a half slave and a half free man, so the free side of his has to choose a pastor, sacrifice to sign up with, and the slave side has to go with his master. The best thing is if he eats it, neither. The best idea is if the other partner liberates him, and therefore he becomes a free man altogether. Now, the question is, how many people can be enumerated and signed up to one pastoral sacrifice? As long as there is an olive size left to eat for every individual. So you have to estimate this particular lamb, sheep, or goat, how many olive sizes of meat there could be, and that's the sign-up list. And then they are signed up on it, they're counted. Furthermore, it's also possible to withdraw, to remove oneself from that list, only until it is slaughtered. Once the slaughtering has already been done, and you can't withdraw, because the animal has already been slaughtered and you were on the list. Because the slaughtering was done with him in mind. What if there were a group of people who signed up and then came a second group and signed up as well? So you have two signed up groups, Rishayin in the first, as long as there is an olive size minimum for everyone, they could eat. They don't have to bring the pastoral offering, the makeup one. But the second group, because if there are so many sign ups that there is not an olive's worth for every one of the second group, they can't eat. Being that this whole deal was beyond their control, they get to bring the second makeup offering. So it actually has to do with who signed up first. Tesmo, now comes a situation, a scenario where the scenario, I believe, is as follows. You have ten people who signed up for a sacrifice. 
So if you have 10 people who signed up for a sacrifice, they each get a tenth of a sacrifice. Makes sense to me. One guy, knowing that he's getting a tenth, and this sacrifice, in his opinion, could feed 30. So his tenth, or it could feed 50. So his tenth is substantial. So he invited a bunch of guys to participate with him in his tenth. He included other people on his portion. But the other nine people had no idea. Then if they want to, the people could give him his portion and he can share it. And they could eat theirs. He can share his portion with his guests. Because he made his own little party. He made his own little subgroup. But again, we need a kazayas for each person. What happens if one member of the group was a glutton? This guy could eat the whole sheep by himself. He's a good eater. You know, all you can eat. They can forcibly remove him from him. And he can give him his portion, which he can eat with his own group. Otherwise, this glutton is going to eat up everything himself. But if he's not a glutton, then what I believe happened here is there's, let's say there's ten people. And one of them is a glutton, so he's going to eat the majority of this animal. They can give him his tent and they can tell him to go and separate. That, I believe, is the meaning here. End of chapter two.